to read from God's holy word, Psalm 129. If you have your own scripture, you can join me. Or, this is a song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Majestic Father, we praise you for who you are, and for your word. Lord, we thank you today that we've gathered together in your name, and we pray that you surround Grant, lift him up as he gives us his, your word from his heart. In Jesus' name we all pray, amen. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, sis. Man, you know, I'm fond of reminding us that on, on Sundays around here, we worship. We don't gather to be part of a club, and we don't gather to learn, although I hope that learning happens. But what we do, what we've set this time aside for as a people is to just worship the Lord. And uh, worship team, thank you for that. The reading of Scripture, so beautiful. May we be a people of worship. May we be, be, a, be a people of thanksgiving. I hope, <clears throat> I hope this week you have some time to spend in thanksgiving. And this is a strange you know, uh, passage to, to read as we think about thanksgiving. And yet, I think that the heart of the psalmist is a thankful heart. This is a Thanksgiving psalm in that it's no sappy ballad. Imagine how many of you are going to go around the table and say what you're thankful for? None of you. Great. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, I might, I might suggest that you could. I mean, I'm not the boss of you, but you could. Um, but when you do, it probably will be the happy things that you mention. And this is a psalm that reminds us that it's not just that God has given us things we like but rather that God has gotten us through very difficult times, things we didn't like, that there's been seasons where his faithfulness, I'll only say this about 6,000 times over the next several minutes, that his faithfulness, his mercy has outpaced our affliction. And this side of the cross, don't you and I look at the affliction that we go through? And let's not make light of it, Although at the end, I'm going to read you Paul's words where he calls imprisonment and beating and shipwreck and torture light afflictions. But let's not make light of the very real struggle that we go through. But let us not elevate the afflictions that we endure over 
the victory of the empty tomb. This is a psalm that resonates, um, that is definitely not, you know, not to you. They were not thinking 2023 when this psalm was written or when it was sung by these pilgrims as part of the songs of ascent. And yet, it rings true. The songwriter is thankful, not that times have been easy, but rather that times have been hard, but God has been faithful to save. I saw a sign, I'm sure it was on the internet somewhere, that said, we don't do things because they're easy. We do things because they, we thought they were going to be easy, but they turned out to be difficult. Many times that's true in our journey of faith, that things ended up more difficult than we hoped. The next few psalms, starting kind of with last week, but really the beginning in earnest this week and the next few psalms, we talked about wisdom psalms last week and how each of these psalms are like, uh, the, you know, you can use the facets of the, of the gemstone as an analogy or you can use one chapter in a book or better yet, one chapter on wisdom in a grand library of, of wisdom. And, and this is like this. This psalm is just this little slice of experience of wisdom. It's not the full picture, but it is part of the picture. And it starts with the psalmist saying, we're still standing. Let's rejoice that after all we've been through, here we are. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. This line that says, let Israel, you have your copy of the scriptures open, you're looking at me, you're going with me. Um, this, uh, this, if you don't, there's a Bible right in front of you. If you don't know how to find Psalm 129, the person next to you totally does, or behind you or in front of you or something. But it starts, greatly have afflicted me from my youth. And then it's like the psalmist takes a pause and says, let Israel now say, like, this is our battle cry. This is our testimony. Israel, this is true about you, this ancient um, Jew says. That greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The first thing to recognize in this psalm is the toughness of the people of God. Of course, it looks completely different than worldly toughness. It has nothing to do with physical strength. The toughness of the people of God is not arrogant or full of pride. It's not based on our might. In fact, we're told over and over, over and over, not by might, nor by power, but it's by the Spirit that anything happens. But you and I, we should have this same kind of toughness, especially this side of the empty tomb. That we shouldn't get rattled and bicker if, say, let me think of something ridiculous, a pandemic were to happen, or a war were to be in the news. We shouldn't be people that fall apart. We should know. We should be able to draw on things in the past and say, look, if God is still faithful through all that the church has been through, maybe he's going to continue to be faithful in the future. Maybe we can be people of grace. Maybe we can be people of forgiveness. Maybe we can be people who are just being cool, man, in light of whatever afflictions come our way. Right at the beginning of the psalm is let Israel now say, though they've afflicted me since my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Like so many of these psalms, we're left to wonder when exactly it was written or when it was written about. But I think we can be pretty confident that 
When the psalmist refers to Israel's youth, he's referring to the Exodus story. So, I don't know how your Bible timeline is in your head, but we're talking about, say, sometime around, we'll call it 1500. Fenton and I could uh, talk about the date of the Exodus for hours and hours and hours. We would be having a great time if we did that. But just call it 14, 1500, somewhere in there. And then let's say you are a pilgrim on the road to Jerusalem and call it 400 uh, BC. So this might be looking at like a thousand years of Jewish history. And the Jew who is reading this, I don't know when it was written, but the Jew who is reading this as a pilgrim in the second temple period, like, like I say, call it 400 years before Jesus, is looking back and going, man, all the way since we were a young people, ever since the Exodus, since our youth, it's been affliction after affliction after affliction, and yet God has been faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful. Every generation after the Exodus story might rightly look back and say, man, we have been the underdogs the whole time. It's been people group after people group, nation after nation. First, it was the Canaanites when Joshua brought us in. Then, well, I guess first it was Egypt. And then it's the Canaanites. And then there's the Philistines. Like, where do these guys come from? And then there's lots of nations. There's all the, the Ites, the Amorites, and the Moabites, and, and, and all of these foreign gods and foreign adversaries. And then there's internal struggle. It wasn't always just from the outside, but it was our own sin that we battled against to the point where we had a civil war and it split us in two. And then there were the Assyrians who came in and, and dragged, you know, 10 tribes of us off to captivity. And then a few years later, the Babylonians came in and dragged a bunch of us off to captivity. And since we've been back in the land, there's been Greeks, and maybe even they see Rome on the, on the uh, future. From Israel's youth, there was affliction. And without God's faithfulness, this would be a very sad story to tell. And yet as the psalmist is writing it, and as the pilgrim is singing it as part of the songs of ascents, there's another way to tell the story. And yet, along with that affliction, was the sustaining love of God. Christians, Jesus is your Savior. He is your Creator. He is also the sustainer of all things, everything we do as we live and breathe, God's love is ever in you, with you, for you. Trouble doesn't tell the whole story. You know, I think because we live in what is generally a pretty comfortable society, I have noticed that a lot of, a lot of conversations turn into Uh, well, either arrogance and like, you know, I did, I, I just made a hundred dollars. Really? I made a thousand. Really? I made a million. Really? I made a pajillion. Or, or it goes the other way and we start playing. My life is worse than yours. <laughs> you're with me. Hey, how you doing? Oh, tired. You're tired. Oh, I have all of this going on. Oh, really? You have all of that going on. Well, I have all of that going on and my finger hurts. Oh, your finger hurts. 
And we can, I don't know if it's because it's just not culturally appropriate to go, I'm at peace. I'm feeling okay. There's affliction, but God is good, and I'm doing fine. You know, like out of shape, not that good looking, thriving. That's just, <laughs> just how we're doing. I don't know if it's because that's just not a, that would be a weird thing in a conversation. We kind of expect to show up and play my life's worse than yours. So I don't know if it's because of that or if it's because we're just all so starved for attention, we need more hugs than we're getting. So we're like, I need somebody to pity me. But we want to define ourselves by the trouble in life and be pretty easy. And if you're not reading it carefully, this psalm almost looks like that. Oh, let's define ourselves by the affliction. Let's internalize, think about, meditate on, spend our time dwelling on the sorrows in our life. This is never going to be a call to ignore the sorrows in the life. Rather, this is a call to say, has God's love not outpaced the sorrow? Is not the hope of heaven, the truth of the empty tomb, more glorious than even our troubles are bad? The other way you could tell the story of Israel is you could go, you wouldn't believe this. God rescued us from Egypt using Moses. And then, and then we conquered Canaan with the you know, intrepid military strategies like walking around a wall and playing the trumpet. And then even like when we got so squirrely, there were like so few people that even honored Yahweh in our land, like God raised up. Samuel, and set things straight. And then when we were like, we want to be like the other nations, we want a king. And, and God was like, you know, I am the king, you don't need one. No, we want to be like the other nations. Still, even through folly and Saul, he raised up David. And in that time, the ark came to Jerusalem and, and the presence of God dwells with his people. Like, this is our story. And even then, through civil war and through unfaithfulness, man, he sent prophets. And the prophets communicated the truth. Like, all I can tell you is this, God's never given up on us. And not only that, but if you're like in the year 400 and you've got the later prophets and you've got like Isaiah 53 and you start going, God is still doing something. There's still promises. A Messiah is coming. All of the promises of God will be fulfilled. Even though there's been affliction after affliction. There's two ways to tell that story. And there's probably two ways to tell your story and my story too. It's either defining ourselves by the trouble or it's defining ourselves by the incredible mercy and grace and love of God that has sustained us. But even then, the big idea is that every story of affliction is a story of God's salvation. What a healthy perspective for God's people to have. Do you see why they would sing this with their families as they're climbing, you know, going from their hometown up to the temple for the feast? Like, let's make one of the songs about how through our own stupidity, through our own sin, and through the might and power of nations all around us, like somehow God has still still sustained us. There's no good reason for us to still be here except God's love.
Is that not your testimony? It certainly is mine. Every time there has been trouble, God has been our sustainer. And as we think about God's work in Israel in the Old Testament, it might beg the question, well, why? Why was Israel, why of all the nations was it Israel that, that God was doing the sustaining work in? Why did God continue to show favor? Was it that Israel was just so awesome? Why this continuing to sustain this particular group of people? Was it because they were so big and powerful? Maybe God likes a winner. Is that it? How far from it? No, actually, over and over in the scriptures, especially in the prophets, we're told that it's the exact opposite. No, you were the least among the nations. When I found you, you weren't even a nation. I called you out of the pagan nations. Your father, Abraham, he didn't know me, and I called him. I'm the one who drew you out of Egypt. No, rather, it's not been about you at all. It's not been that Israel is so awesome. No, rather, it's God's plan is so awesome for the whole world that he had selected this little people group to be a light to the whole world. Right at the beginning of the nation of Israel, there is the mission statement in Ezekiel 19, 5 through 6. Still at Mount Sinai, God tells the people, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, a big word that if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all, of the, for all of the earth is mine. So God is saying, look, the whole earth is mine, but I have a special plan for you. Verse six says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is what he's telling Moses to go tell the people. So Israel was chosen both for relationship with God and for a mission. God is not sustaining them because they are awesome. God is sustaining them because they have a work that he has not done with them yet. That Israel might be the covenant people. That's all bound. This is all relational words that, you know, the biggest like covenant that we see is like marriage, right? Like, me and Tiff, we are a covenant people. We made promises, we made vows before God and many witnesses. Till death do we part. She made one bad decision 27 years ago. It's a covenant. Get wrecked. Um, but this is how God and Israel are bound. For what reason? Not just so they can love each other, although that's great. But so they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that they might be a light to the nation. So that like, pre, like a priest, uh, an Old Testament priest, interfaces between God and the people, Israel might be a mediator between God and the rest of the world. Not that Israel would be like, Yahweh's our God, nanny, nanny, nanny. No, but rather it would be, come and see what life is like as you follow Yahweh and be welcomed into this relationship with God the one true living God. And all this was intended to happen in the context of a covenant relationship. It's all relational. God would provide and protect. Israel would obey. Right at the heart of Psalm 129 that we're considering today is the idea that even when Israel failed miserably, God did not give up 
his covenant relationship with Israel. Nor did he give up on Israel's mission to be a light of the world. How many times, if you guys are, are Bible nerds at all, if you've read the Old Testament at all, aren't there about a hundred places where you go, why did God not just start over? Why did God just not pick a different people? They're rebellious. They don't listen. They're not being a light to the nations. They're not keeping their end of the covenant. Why? Well, because it was through Israel that God brought the Messiah into the world. Because the way that Israel was going to fulfill its mission, the way the covenants were all going to come to fruition, the promises of God were going to be made right in Israel was through the person of Jesus Christ. And God sustains them through their own failure and through the power of all the nations of the world that they might be the nation that he would use to bring Jesus into the world. How else is Abraham a blessing to every nation in the world except through the person of Jesus Christ. See, God doesn't sustain them because they're awesome, and God didn't sustain them because, he, all right, I love you so much, I'll give you another chance. No, rather, God had a plan to save you and me. And that plan was Jesus, and he delighted to use Israel to do that. So as they are going to the feast, they rightly say, since we were young, it's been affliction after affliction. But yet God has sustained us through every affliction. We were looking forward to Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for giving us a chance to sing that this morning. Through every affliction was God's salvation, and ultimately, God was able to keep every promise in Christ. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about 2 Corinthians 1.20, that all of the promises of God Paul wrote this, I didn't. That all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son through His Old Testament covenant people Israel that you and I might be welcomed in to be the people of God. Through all of the afflictions through all of the failure, God's covenant plan to bring a Messiah to the world was fulfilled. The psalmist doesn't even know that's what he's singing about. There's still future for him. You and I look back and can see it so clearly. Hallelujah. Jesus has come. The promise to Eve the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, the hope of the promise, uh, the hope of the prophets, all the promises and hope filled in the person of Jesus Christ. And the psalmist continues making it clear who has been the victor. While Israel has been the ones that were sustained, they were not the sustainer. Look at verses 3 and 4. They have been saved and sustained. Verses 3 and 4 say, The plowers plowed upon my back. Dude, you don't write poetry that good. That is, that, is that not just brutal and beautiful imagery? It's like if Israel was a man, Israel was a person, this is what it's been like, just furrows on my back. And they, made their, and they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has 
the cord of the wicked. It is brutal and beautiful imagery that there's been like a plow on their back. That's what it feels like sometimes. You see how there's let's, let's glory in the sustaining work of Jesus. That doesn't mean we have to say it's been fun. We're allowed to say, man, it's felt like people were plowing along my back. You see the imagery of somebody driving a couple of oxen with that heavy and sharp plow blade in the earth and just row after row. This is the way it's felt. It's been difficult. There's been times of agony. There's been times of exile. There's been times of famine. And yet, verse 4, Yahweh is righteous. The plowers plowed upon my back and they made long their furrows. But God, the Lord, is righteous. While there's certainly such a thing as righteous behavior, righteous is really a word that is, again, bound up in relationship. It means to be in right relationship with God. So the psalmist is saying, look, we have been rescued, not because we were able to stay in right relationship with God, but because God did not give up on a relationship with us. We were not the righteous ones, but God, Yahweh, is righteous. We aren't still in relationship because of how we've behaved. We simply have been rescued because God has loved us. God has kept his promises. God has helped undeserving people. And is that not your testimony and mine? Is that not the testimony of the church? You ever read a book on church history? How has God sustained the church? We have been knuckleheads in huge ways over centuries and made mistakes and it ended up in the news for all the wrong reasons and had leaders that failed and whole offshoots of groups that just were power hungry and just cared about themselves and were violent and, and, and it looks like they're giving a bad name to Jesus except God is so faithful. He has sustained his church even to now. And isn't that the testimony of you and your family and your life as well? That it hasn't been you. It wasn't you. It wasn't you were so great. It wasn't you went to the right church or you did everything. In fact, I bet we would each say it's pretty easy for me to define myself by, by sin. It's pretty easy even for me to define myself by sin that has been kind of hidden. You wouldn't know it to look. But man, when I'm alone, when it's quiet around it is hard for me to remember how much God loves me because it's easy for me to focus on my sin but the psalmist is encouraging us to do the exact opposite and go even through your failure God's plan God's promise has not failed and will not fail let me state the obvious this should engender humility I don't really understand an arrogant Christian, although I've been one. But this is a psalm that would lead us to go, man, through my failure and through the might of the sin of the world and all of the world's temptations and all of the, the powers that be and all of the things pulling me around, it's just been God. 
It's just been him that has been my savior since my youth. Don't we sing with the psalmist over and over, there has been trouble. But God has been the righteous one. He has rescued me. He has saved me. I know I've told you before, but it was some of the most impactful words I ever heard when I was talking with my future mother-in-law about marrying her daughter. And I was a a part-time youth pastor, and that was not something that she was, like she was glad I was a Christian, but I'm I'm not sure like, Eminent provider is how I would have described myself. (laughs) And I I remember saying, well, you know, we'll be faithful to God and he'll be faithful to us. And Kathy, who is just this, she's a wise, godly woman and who, you know, was my friend and loved me and said to me, oh, Grant, even when you're not faithful, God will be faithful to you. Isn't that your story? So verse 4 goes on to say, and God has cut the cords of the wicked. You know, truthfully, through my human eyes, it's a little tough for me to pin down exactly what episode in Israel's history the author might be referring to. If I was a little cynical, which I am, I'd say, geez, like Israel was almost always under the oppression of somebody or another. When was this great cutting of the cord of wickedness? Think about what you know of Israel's history. When could they really say, and then the cords of wickedness were cut. Then our sin was no longer a problem. Then the sin of other people was no longer a problem. It's hard to find that time. Unless, maybe the psalmist is still thinking about the perseverance of Israel. The sustaining work of God. That the furrows are deep, but they aren't what defines him. That the affliction has been heavy, but that hasn't been the defining trait of the people. God has been more faithful than the, than the afflictions have been painful. Hey, and if we were a little tougher as a people, if we weren't prioritizing our own comfort, wouldn't we say stuff like this more? Look, yeah, it's been tough. There's been illness, and there's been sin. And there's been the sin of other people and there's been my sin. And there's been affliction. It hasn't always been easy. Life has been tough. But God's mercy, God's love, the empty tomb has outpaced my affliction by a mile. Let's not forget that it was by the stripes on Jesus' back that we have been healed. If we're talking about furrows on backs, let us remember That in a way this psalmist could not have seen hundreds of years before the work of Christ. That it is the the furrows caused by the cat of nine tails along the back of Christ that gives us hope. That has been our sustainer. It is by His stripes that we find healing. You and I look at the cords of wickedness that have been attached to us. You know, Hebrews talks about the sin that entangles. Secret sin that zaps joy right out of your life. I don't have to, I don't have to ask you if you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Secret bitterness that pulls all the peace away because it's all you're thinking about. Worry and anxiety that's, that's 
neglecting the love of God in your life that has just left you exhausted and weary. Lies and selfishness that rob us of proper relationships with each other. What can save us from a life in this kingdom of sin and death to which we were born? This life of the treadmill for 80 or 100 years and then just the grave. Futility, what saves us from this wickedness? Well, it is the stripes on Jesus' back. It is our burden on the person of Jesus at the cross. It is His victory in conquering death that gives us hope. We look at a psalm like this in a way the psalmist never could. And you and I say, there's been affliction. It's been terrible. I've been dumb and the people around me have been dumb too. But I look to the future with hope because of Christ's work, not because of mine. God is the righteous one. And He cuts the cords of wickedness. Because I can't. It it's not our suffering, it's His victory. And our suffering is more than we could overcome. I'm, I know the burdens in your life are more than you can take. They are in all of our lives. Our sin is too much for us. The wickedness of the world is more than we can take. We have to do something about our news apps. They are nothing but like depression machines. Unless we are constantly considering the work of Christ who has cut the cords of wickedness to give us hope. Man, are you trusting Christ with your life? Well, I don't know. I know you don't know. Well, I don't know what that means for my behavior. What would I have to change? Nothing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Christ will change you. You walk with the Lord and you'll be a different person eventually, but it'll be one step at a time and it'll be a joyful journey. But if you're asking, what do I have to get right in my life before I say yes to Jesus? Nothing. Just come to Jesus and do it today. What would I have to give up? Oh, everything. Praise the Lord. None of it works. None of it really brings you joy and you can't take any of it with you anyway. And friends are, you know, fake so much of the time. You got to give up everything. But what you gain is victory in Christ, is hope for eternity. God is the righteous one. My friends, we can be thankful not only because God has sustained us through difficult times, but because Christ has cut the cords of wickedness. While sin and sorrow are ever before us, they don't define us. We go through things. Life is hard, and we don't ignore that as Christians. We don't just like... Like, I love, like, the Precious Moments figurines. You know what I'm talking about? Do you, is anybody old enough to remember the Precious Moments How many of you still have them in your house? They're wonderful things, but those are precious moments. Like the flowery greeting card version of Christianity. Like, it's not enough. It's not practical, am I right? No, rather... We have to say, no, really, times are very difficult sometimes, and yet the mercy and grace of God outpaces that difficulty. Praise the Lord. Then, if you'll give me another couple minutes, the psalm takes an imprecatory turn. Imprecatory is a word that means to call down a curse. And this is one of the 
best parts of the Psalms. It's also one of the most difficult parts of the Psalms. You'll be reading a Psalms, yeah, imprecatory. When you call your uh, family later today, we'll sound like we're a smart church if you go, we discussed imprecatory Psalms in church today. It just means to call down a curse. You know how you'll be reading the Psalms and be like, and the Lord is good and God's awesome. And then the next line is like, so God, kill him with the jawbone of a donkey. And you're like, whoa, that, sound, that was harsh. That's imprecatory. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights um, this fall, you're well familiar with imprecatory Psalms. We've covered a few of them. But it can be startling to read. And this one is startling to read. I mean, the psalm ends like this. May all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like grass on the housetop. So the image there is like commentaries, commentators say a couple things. You might, maybe it's that the sheaves of grass you throw on the rooftop and they stay green for a while, but then they just, you know, shrivel up and, and turn, um, turn brown. Others say, no, 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 this is like, you know, the, some seed that accidentally, well, sometimes we have it growing out of our rain gutters out here. You know what I mean? It's like, so just on the rooftop, there's like some grass growing, but it doesn't have any roots. So the first time the sun comes out, it's going to wither. So they're like, hey, make people like that, just like useless. Make them wither before it grows up which the reaper does not fill in his hand or the binder of sheaves in his arms. Like, no harvest, no profit. This is my favorite one. Nor do those pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Like saying, like, hey God, for our enemies, be sure nobody mistakes them for a blessed person. I hope nobody ever tells them, wow, God really must love you. I'm not going to lie, my first reaction to passages like this is that they're downright unchristian. May all who hate Zion be turned backwards. I thought we were supposed to love our enemies. May they be like withering grass on a rooftop. I thought we were supposed to pray for those who persecute us. May they be like, or I'm sorry, may nobody say Yahweh has blessed them. I thought we were supposed to repay evil with good. You know, some might say, well, this is, this is the Old Testament. God was meaner in the Old Testament. That's what's going on here. Hey, that's an ancient heresy. Don't fall for it. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, just as loving, just as wrathful, same God, eternal, never changing. Not only that, but if it's an, the Old Testament, God will then, if it's the, uh, surely the author of our psalm had read things like this before. Exodus 23 says, if you meet your enemy's uh, ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. This would be like saying, if you see your friend's stock portfolio plummeting and you can help him, help him. If you see your enemy going through hard times, well, make sure he's not going through hard times anymore. This is Old Testament stuff. Proverbs 24, 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let, your, uh, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Far from saying, I hope nobody ever mistakens you for a blessed person. Proverbs says, actually, when your enemy stumbles, don't, don't gloat. Don't rejoice over that. Don't let your heart be glad when your enemy stumbles. Deuteronomy 10, 19 says, Love the foreigner, therefore... For you are foreigners in the land of Egypt. So far 
from God, kill them, be sure they're not blessed. No, rather the instruction has been, hey, even your enemy, be good to them. So what are we supposed to do with imprecatory psalms? Well, two things I want you to notice in, in this. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. First of all, it's honest. And the Psalms, more than anything else, give us the permission to feel like humans, to feel the emotional range of human emotion. The emotional range of human emotion. <laughs> what an eloquent speaker God has given you. The psalmist feels like this. This is not instruction. The psalmist, you know, even when we say imprecatory, calling down a curse, is that how it works? Do you call down curses? Do you tell God what he should do with people? No. But rather, he is your loving heavenly father and you're allowed to be honest with him. And I don't think this is an argument for praying violence on our enemies, but I do think it's a a call to not go, man, I'm just so frustrated. And maybe I'll talk about this as we go too, but, but you know, maybe there's something in the world that just makes you mad, like human trafficking ticks me off. Are, does that tick you off as well? Okay, not very many of you said yes. Make you mad. It's terrible. And it is tempting to go, God, if there is somebody who is trafficking a human right now, please send an axe murderer and just take care of business. That's how I feel. But so many times we talk with a friend and we go like, this is terrible and bad things should happen. We should pray about it. That's right. Dearest, heavenliest, fatherest, pleasest thouest, if thou wilt. And we don't pray honestly. And imprecatory psalms give us permission to pray honestly. Not to say you're the boss and you get to say, who lives a good life and who doesn't. Wouldn't that be great if we took this too literally? It would be like us with a scepter and a crown being like, cursed, <laughs> blessed. Cursed. Like that's not how this in any of this works. And we know that. But we are allowed to go, God, I'm so mad. There's kids that are hurting and grownups taking advantage of them. It's not fair. And God, would you please act? God, would you do something? I'm so angry about this. You're allowed to pray in an honest way. And maybe we haven't been taught to pray like that. God can take how you actually feel, maybe is the way to say that. The second thing when we notice material like this is that we notice that it puts our enemy's fate in God's hands. It is praying and putting our anger in the throne room of God instead of acting violently. Anybody who would try to solve the, world, the world's problems with violence is missing this. Or at least a Christian. Is missing that what the imprecatory Psalms give us the, the uh, encouragement to do is leave other people's fate not in your hands, but in God's. So, you are allowed to pray, God, oh, that guy drives me crazy. But if you see that guy's donkey Wandering off, bring it back to him. Especially a donkey. Donkeys are so wonderful. Even in this, I want to be careful because the most biblical thing we can pray for, for even the worst of our enemies, is God's blessing for them. 
However, we're not called to ignore our emotional frustration. All we need to know, oh, I'm sorry, we all need to know what to do with evil in the world. There might be some category that issue that is super important to you. I bet if we went around the room, there would be a lot of things that are genuinely evil in the world that we care about and that maybe have touched you in a way that you really care about that, you know, more than the other things. What do you do with that kind of evil? My temptation is to repay violence with violence, but we have to learn to trust God with the fate of the wicked. It's not that we do nothing. Prayer is not nothing but it is that we trust that God is the judge, we are not, and he can deal with evil. So, the psalmist says, ever since my youth, Israel has been afflicted, but God has outpaced that affliction. He has sustained us, kept us going. He has continued to be righteous. He has continued to keep us on mission, but God, with all the evil in the world, would you, I commit that evil to you and say, God, would you please bring justice to the world? That's a good prayer. That's a good song to sing on your way to the feast. Well, to wrap it up, there should be a strength in Christians. If we acknowledge the sustaining nature of God, if God is our sustainer, we should not freak out in anger. No matter what the next law says, no matter what the TV tells us I should be mad about as I sit on my comfortable couch and scratch my basset hound behind the ears, just getting you know angry and angrier about something the television tells me to be angry about. No matter what happens in my personal life. I've known a lot of families. I haven't known any that tragedy didn't hit them at some point in some way. But as those things come, if we are really built on a foundation of Christ, if we are really looking back at the history of the sustaining nature of our faith, we should be strong enough to be gracious, kind, forgiving, and full of mercy, even in the most difficult times. There's no, to be, there's no need to be freaked out. Rather, when we see the world freaking out, we are the light. There's been affliction, but God's love, God's ability to rescue, God's ability to save has always outpaced the sorrow of affliction. We should stand with Paul as he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. Now, Paul was a man of great suffering. If anybody was going to lose heart, it would be his storyline that would cause you to lose heart. But he says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. And that's what we get mad at, right? That our, the stuff is happening to our outer self. Your soul is not in danger. It's the rest of you. That our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. That God is finding a way to be faithful even in the trials of life. For this Light and momentary affliction. Jail, torture, cat of nine tails, shipwreck, snake bite. These light and momentary afflictions is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So yeah, today might stink, but there's glory forever. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
That is ridiculous to a materialist. To somebody who says this world is all there is, there's nothing after the grave. It's all just electronic impulses in your brain. It's your chemical, your one chemical reaction after another. You know, the, we don't really, choice is, uh, you know, will is an illusion. So is time. None of this stuff matters. This is a ridiculous statement. But if you have a soul, if eternity is real, then this is the only thing that makes sense. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Why, Paul? For the things that are seen are transient. They come and go. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Since our youth, since the first generation of Christians, there's been affliction. There was never a Christian utopia. No, there have been afflictions the whole time. But God has sustained us. And in the work of Christ, we see a future hope that is so full of glory that we can consider today light and momentary afflictions. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for sustaining us. Lord, through illness and tragedy and cultural things and broken relationships and difficulties in life, God, you somehow keep loving us. Lord, we see how your promises to Israel were completed and fulfilled in Christ, and, and we see that your promises to us will be completed and fulfilled in Christ too. Lord, we look forward to being with you face to face. And it gives us courage as we look at your faithfulness in the past and our hope for the future. Lord, it, it gives us courage for today. God, if there are some in the room who haven't given their life to you, I pray that today would just be the day that they'd go, I'm going to stop putting my hope in all the affliction or all the stuff that causes affliction. I'm going to put my hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm going to die to myself. I'm not going to live for me anymore. I'm going to live for Christ. Jesus, would you save us? Save us from our sin. Save us from the sin of other people. Lord, while the outside is a mess, would you build us up day by day in our inner person? God, teach us to trust you day by day. I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.